Giants, Knicks, Mets. Alright. Went against the grain. Yeah. Sounds Giants, Knicks, Red Sox. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I didn't, so my dad was a San Francisco, he was a New York Giants baseball fan. Gotcha. And then they moved to San Francisco. Right. So growing up, I, he was still, now he's a Yankees fan. Shame on him. But, yeah. Well, you, you can still talk to those Brooklynites who were around <laughs> when the Dodgers left. Yeah. And they yeah. still call them still, them bumps. Yeah, that's right. So, sometimes the animosities were deep. Yeah. Hello, everyone. It's a nice response. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started with the next panel. The topic is African-American males and incarceration. And I'll be your moderator for the next panel. My name is Michael Spencer. I'm an attorney here in town at Kegler Brown Hill Ritter. And I'm a recent graduate of um, this particular law school, which I graduated with my good friend in the back, Jamal Redman, exactly one year today, um, one year ago today. So it's nice. I appreciate that. Thanks. So it's nice to be back here. Um, I want to go ahead and, for the first time, voluntarily speak on behalf of all black men and thank you all for coming to this important important conference. It's, it's timely. It's necessary. It's something that we need to address as a society. And I'm glad to see that we have women in this room as well as people from other ethnicities and racial groups as well. Our first panelist is going to be Daniel Lawson right here. Um, the next panelist is going to be Christopher Robbins, and our third will be Adolphus Belk. I'll introduce each panelist before he presents so we can have some clarity on what they're talking about. And each panelist will speak for roughly 20 to 25 minutes about their respective topic. The first panelist, Daniel Lawson, is a senior education law and policy associate with the Civil Rights Project at Harvard University. In his talk, he will focus on graduation rates and the use of data to find solutions in the ongoing struggle for political will. He will also discuss structural solutions to structural racism or immediate policy needs to stop the flow out of schools and into prisons. Without further ado, please welcome Mr. Lawson. Thank you. I just have to get the... Uh Now, I've gotten to the point where without my glasses, I can't see anything, so hold on. So it's a great honor to be asked to come and present for all of you. Um, I think, uh, as John Powell has pointed out, there are some real positive things, and one of them is happening right here today. Um, in fact, around the country, there's a lot uh, more attention to what we call the school-to-prison pipeline and thinking of uh, solutions and remedies to that than there was I would say four or five years ago. Um, at Harvard, we have done a lot of research on racial disparities and racial isolation in terms of school segregation, racial disparities in achievement, use of high-stakes testing, discipline, racial inequity in special education. And our work around the school-to-prison pipeline uh, started with bringing advocates together with researchers to address this and think about not just how we can better describe the problem to raise awareness, but also how we can bring about some real remedies. And uh, so rather than, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis, it's analysis to action. And as an advocate, I'm an attorney, but I also have a master's in education, um, it's really important, I would say, to bring these things together, the research community, educators, communities of color, uh, communities, parents, all 
everyone together to really address this. Uh, so I'm going to start by briefly going over some of the things, but I'm going to spend less time because of the whole morning we spent on this. If you think about racial inequity and structural racism uh, in education, it starts with early childhood education. Some people have criticized our framing of the school-to-prison pipeline, saying they should should start, you know, cradle to to prison or something like that because of the inadequacies that start before kids get to school so that especially children of color are are often coming to school with less support and, and less um, uh, access to adequate, you name it, health care, preschool, and down the line. And it as it manifests itself in the persistent racial achievement gap, there's Structural racism manifests itself in resource inequity, and I'll talk about right here in Ohio. We have an unconstitutional system of uh, education resources, and that's the status quo. It's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. Uh, and we have that going on in many, many states. So where kids have a right to an education, they're not having their needs met. Uh, the resources are not being provided even where it's required under a state constitution. We have policies such as grade retention, a number of things that are blaming, blaming the kids for the failures of, uh, of the adults. Uh, kids are increasingly be, being suspended for things like truancy. I mean, there's no deterrent. Kids not coming to school, there's no deterrent by suspending them for truancy. It's, uh, so we have these absurd policies uh, reflected. I'll concentrate more on school discipline. We have gross uh, inequities in special education that come out both as uh, children of color are much more likely to be labeled uh, mentally retarded or emotionally disturbed, especially black males, but also those students of color who do have special education needs, the same inadequacies we see in the general education system we see in special education. Uh, so I'll discuss that a little bit. We'll talk about test-driven accountability and all the other ways that things contribute to huge numbers of kids uh, kids of color, predominantly, especially black males, not earning, a gra- not earning their diploma. And eventually, this contributes mightily to this, this problem that we're addressing today. So what can be done? So one of the things, as an advocate, I go around the country. Sometimes I'm talking to lawyers, sometimes policymakers, and sometimes to community uh, advocates. And all, all are necessary. So it's not one or the other, but we really have to move forward on all three fronts, and there's probably, you can probably find other areas that advocacy has to move forward on. But the part of it is raising awareness and public will and getting accurate information. Part of it is giving community advocates the resources they need to be effective. Part of it is finding the right kinds of lawsuits uh, to really affect change in more meaningful ways. And also thinking about legislation uh, and legislative solutions. And, but most importantly, thinking of these things together that these are not uh, forms of advocacy that exist in isolation. Uh, part of it begins with defining the problem. A lot has been talked about here, black males, uh, which is uh, absolutely uh, the you know, most profound uh, in terms of being denied uh, their educational needs. This is the group that's, that shows up as having the pro- most profound outcomes of our denial of education. Um, but also what are the root causes? Some are structural racism. There's some link to poverty. And all this is important to understand in terms of uh, designing the remedy. And I'm certainly, as an advocate, one who absolutely is insistent on keeping race on the table. Some of the discussions earlier today, you know, sort of touched on the need to keep the the racial dynamics uh, part, and uh, if not in the front of this debate. But it's not the only piece of this. So 
thinking about other ways to reach broader audiences, have got, we have to think broadly as well as to focus on, on the needs of, of black males. And, and ultimately, we all want the same thing. We need to find ways to, to move the ball forward and reject the status quo. So when we think about issues at the state level, we have a system. One of the, I'll say one good thing about No Child Left Behind. In its rhetoric, it rejects the status quo. And that's very important from a civil rights advocacy perspective. It says to everybody, educators especially and adults, that the current system where black students, Latino students, so on, are not achieving to meet our high standards, that is unacceptable. Now, what follows from No Child Left Behind is often an unworkable remedy under finance, under resource, and so forth. So there are huge problems with No Child Left Behind. But the message that the current status quo is absolutely not acceptable is extremely important, and it's race conscious. So you can close a school down because black students are not performing to the standards uh, that we have set uh, for our educational system. So that's important to hold on to. But then we have a system, we have a very absurd system where the law says you're not supposed to take these federal funds. Title I is a a multi-multi-billion dollar program, the largest source of federal funding for education. It's not supposed to take the place of state funding. But in fact, that's what we see in our urban settings time and time again. So we have the states failing to meet their jobs to provide an education. So the federal funding is really filling a hole that's been dug rather than adding on and ensuring that kids who have additional needs who may be poor, um, that their needs are better met. That's what Title I is supposed to do, but in many places it's not. Then we have in Ohio especially, we have these states uh, where there's, as I mentioned, unconstitutional uh, provision of education. They're under-resourcing, especially communities of color. So it's the Cincinnati's, the Columbus's, Toledo's, so for the major urban centers, actually wherever you see racial isolation, you tend to see uh, the failure to provide adequate educational resources. And then we layer on top of that this test-driven accountability, which is really the main thrust of No Child Left Behind from the federal government, saying you can close the schools down if the kids are not performing up to 100% proficiency in 12 years. That's a, a great idea if there are resources to do that. But if the state is failing to provide, is trampling on the kids' educational rights, failing to provide the funds in the first place, it's absurd. Uh, and here's just a little more detail on that. So the state of Ohio, in the, the case many of you may know, is the DeRolf uh, litigation. <clears throat> it was proven that they're insufficiently funding the schools. Um, one of the elements of proof was the low test scores in the districts. Um, then this, the, so the... So the court, the state's highest court rules and the state legislature fails to provide a remedy. So what's next? State of Ohio declined to take further action. So they're accepting the status quo in Ohio. Nothing is being done. We do have uh, a major problem. And then the federal government under No Child Left Behind is giving all this money to each state and saying hold the districts accountable. So you have a situation where The state of Ohio, the same state that is failing to meet their obligation to meet the needs of these kids, it's the same state that the federal government says, you, state, hold the district accountable. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that's the same poor racially isolated districts. The state is failing to fund that the state then turns around and says, oh, we're going to close your schools or take over your school district. Why? Because you failed to make AYP because of your low test scores. So the same evidence that prove that the state of Ohio was failing to meet the needs of these kids is the same 
uh, rationale that the state can then is supposedly going in and taking over schools and districts. It's just absurd. It's an unworkable situation. There's no remedy there because there's no um, actual resources being provided to change the situation. Nationally, we have a problem uh, in very in, throughout with on, layered on top of this kind of accountability, we have what I call the tsunami of intolerance. And I'll briefly just this graph just demonstrates from the first set of columns is 1973. Now, most of you will are, uh, know that these racial disparities are nothing new. They've existed uh, um, for long, long times. You know, going back to, to desegregating schools, we've had tremendous disparities in who gets suspended by race. But if you look, if you follow forward to 2003, we have a situation where K through 12, this is only counting a student one time. So students who repeatedly are suspended aren't showing up in this set of data. So 14% of black students have been suspended at least once in 2003. 14%. Compare that to um, about 6% for white students. And, or no, I'm sorry, 5% for, for, for all enrolled whites. So you see, as all students have increased their risk of suspension, the burden has disproportionately fallen on black students. So we all know this to be true. So some of the questions are, are there other relationships we should be looking at? Testing? What about teacher resources? Are these students given the same educational opportunity? We know that they have not been. I mean, the answer to most of these questions is no. Or in this case, does suspension predict incarceration? Yes. Being suspended in the sense that being suspended just one time increases your likelihood of, of, of dropping out about threefold. And dropouts, about 80% of our or more of the incarcerated youth have failed to graduate high school. So does the data reflect institutionalized racism? Absolutely. But it also unconscious bias. These are teachers making decisions about kids in ways that sometimes even uh, teachers who are supposedly well-intended are not realizing. Part of the problem is that they're not looking at the information. Now, I've gone to districts. I was in, uh, elsewhere in, in, in North Carolina in Guilford County working with a district there. The principal who was suspending the most kids there didn't even know what their data looked like. Um, they didn't know. And this is just another example. I'm finding in middle schools throughout the country, we're seeing this is, again, suspended one time. Black males, uh, 62% of black males in some middle schools in North Carolina, and I'm telling you, this is, the, this is not the exception. This is probably the rule in every large district uh, in America. You're going to find a middle school that looks something like this, where more than 50% of the black males are suspended at least once. This describes a system in chaos. This is not educational opportunity. So part of the overarching, and this is a reflection of all sorts of societal racism, and also the criminalization of youth in general. And instead of thinking about the mission of public education, the interests of democracy, and the cost of the community, uh, we adopt these zero-tolerance policies with the thought that we're going to kick out the bad kids so that the good kids can learn. You'll hear this among educators of all color. And this is a, a problem that we need to address in every way we can find, whether it's litigation, whether it's uh, legislation, community advocacy. We have to address this. We've got to turn this around. And part of it is not starting with kids in jail when we talk about the problem, but starting with the kids uh, that we talked about this morning who are entering schools, eager to learn, these joyous, happy kids who um, are, over time, you know, the lights go out and we see what, what, what the net effect is. <clears throat> so 
in, instead of having these interests of democracy and the values to the community and making sure that our discipline intervention has some research behind it, instead, the sort of cultural groove, the stereotypes of associating badness and blackness, you know, perpetuate decisions at every level. So institutionalized res- racism down to cultural bias, unconscious bias, call it what you will, it's there at every level. It's there in special education. So we have where kids are labeled and sorted, where the the label has a stigma. We see, for example, that uh, black, uh, especially black males, are much more likely to be labeled mentally retarded, emotionally disturbed, and removed from the general education setting. Uh, We see that uh, then supposedly some people say, well, at least if they are eligible and have a disability, you can't push them out. Right? Don't they have more rights? Some of you are educators know this. Kids with disabilities, there's a lot you can do. They have a right to non-cessation of services, which basically means whatever you do, they have a right to continue their education in whatever setting, whether it be in the juvenile justice system or they're kicked out of school, you still have to provide for their education. Well, in fact, um, there's the evidence suggests that this doesn't happen. Um, There. And when you compare kids with disabilities, who are supposed to have these added procedural protections to make it harder to kick them out of school, well, it's black students, again, when you compare them to whites, are much more likely to be suspended or expelled. And then, you know, what's the net effect? The net effect, especially for black students and black males, is that our jails have become our default special education system. We are not providing. So kids who do need services are not getting them. Instead, they're getting suspended, expelled. They may get the label, but they're not getting the services. They're not getting the counseling. They're not getting anything that the, the other kids do get oftentimes. And as a wind up, this is where they are. They're in jail. And you can see, compared to white students, uh, this is nationwide, so there are states that are much worse than this. But nationwide, black students with disabilities are over four times as likely to be educated in a correctional institution. Latino kids, same disparity, same, but not to the same degree, but almost twice as likely. So we have all these ways in which we are failing to provide for the needs of students in general, and especially black students and especially black males. Uh, even the most conservative data show that about 33% of all kids incarcerated are kids with disabilities. Then there's an additional layer that doesn't get anything. These are kids with undiagnosed uh, health needs. Someone was talking about uh, trauma and, and domestic violence. Kids who witness that and come to school, they don't get any support, any counseling whatsoever. Uh, oftentimes, this becomes a manifest, it manifests itself as a disability or as behavioral issues. And so the kids who are victimized at home wind up getting victimized by the institution that fails to provide their needs once again. And instead of addressing the problem, providing supports for these kids, uh, they get kicked out of school. Um, so we have this negative cycle over and over and over and over. Um, so it also shows up in the graduation rate data. And one of the things the Civil Rights Project has been doing is going around the country, suppressing the reveal button. So getting past the smoke and mirrors that we've been ex- sort of uh, subjected to, where the accurate racial data on who's graduating and who isn't has not been provided. And so we've been uh, one of the many leading forces behind this movement to get more accurate data around things like graduation rates and then get some accountability as well so that schools, instead of just judging schools by test scores, um, you can imagine if you're just at a high school or middle school, you're just judging by reading scores, one way to increase your reading scores dramatically is kick out all the low achievers. Get rid of them. 
Get them to drop out. Go send them to a GD program. This is happening over and over in every state and every district. We're seeing this pattern, and especially for black males. So that's where you see, you know, which group. It's black males that if you start at ninth grade, who starts ninth grade and who has a diploma four years later? Only 43% of black males uh, earn a diploma who start ninth grade on time. So this is a tremendous, tremendous um, uh, disparity that until recently wasn't getting any attention. Now we have Oprah, the Gates Foundation, folks are starting. So some things are moving. And I can tell you, because I do some work on federal legislation, that they're talking about graduation rate accountability and accuracy in reporting. These things are percolating up to the top uh, for a number of reasons which I can go into. But the problem is, I think the graduation rate crisis and the fact that it takes you know, a movement to reveal something that's so basic as who's graduating and who isn't from our high schools suggests that you know, we have this, this major confrontation about just in something as simple as getting accuracy in data. Now, my son, uh, who on his first day of kindergarten, came home from kindergarten and said, Daddy, today I learned the Pledge of Illusions. And, and I laughed, and I thought, well, I was about to make a speech like this when I said, well, there's got to be a way to bring that into to, you know, a little comic relief to this tragedy. And so we have the Pledge of Illusions, but we know that the Pledge of Illusions, where we don't look at the act, we don't look at the data, we don't try to understand the problem, we don't break it down by race, it ends with liberty and justice for none. So one of the things that, if you cut the data even closer, we'll find that, I mentioned suspended students are more likely to drop out. We also find that student suspensions are on the rise just around test time. Surprise, surprise. So there's this gaming of the system. Again, you put the pressure on one place, we have to look at more data to understand this, to catch folks when they are gaming the system and not let them get away with it. So these are the things that you can do on the community level. Um, um, I'm going to skip over this. We talked about this morning. So it's really important for advocacy at every level to have, hold on, I'll go back for a second, to have accurate data and use that to inform your strategy. So think about how the information and the access to it impacts the problem identification. So if you don't know where to, if you're not looking in the right place, you're not going to see the same problem. And this is very important in terms of even legislation to get accurate reporting of suspension rates, expulsion rates, graduation rates. Those sorts of things are things that we're working on. We have model legislation uh, that we that has been passed by uh, in Maryland, uh, introduced in Texas, and is now informing the debate on accurate and, and graduation rate accountability on the federal level. But these are not that complicated. These are things that folks can do in Ohio at the community level, at the state level, and you have influence at the federal level. You know, as in, in the Texas, there is a a, a federal representative from Texas who said to the crowd, he said, you know, when I come back from Congress, there's nobody um, I'm, I'm my, knocking on my door saying they care about graduation rates. He said, until that happens, you know, I'm not going to really worry about this problem. And that's a message to, to all of us, though, that we have to put the press on and starting at home, but think about all these levels, federal, state, and local. So what do, more specifically, what do they look at? You know, what, what are some of the remedies we can look for immediately? As I pointed out, we're making, if we make these children invisible, then we'll never have a remedy. So we have to get more accurate data. It shows evidence of inadequacy that lawyers can use in a lawsuit. Also showing that the relationship, as I did with the testing, with these other things. So you don't push down on a problem one place and just have it pop up somewhere else. Um, 
It's important when it, at every venue to be able to speak truth to power, to have accurate data. It helps you also identify success and hope. So how do you know which programs are working? How do you distinguish a snake, the snake oil guy who comes in and sells a, a program that he claims is going to work and, and save our kids from one that really is proven effective? We need to have data to evaluate these programs, and we have to support the ones that are successful. And those programs should be using this information to find the extent that no program is you know, perfectly successful. They should f use data to help them uh, evaluate their own programs so that they find out what works and can disting distinguish from what doesn't. So it's important to have accurate information, have an evaluation baseline. Also, economic analysis. We talked about the school of prison. One of the major problems is that the school of prison lobby is really strong. We're building prisons in California and cutting the education budget. That's, that's absurd. That's outrageous. Uh, but part of the problem is that discussion about the prison budget, no one's talking about the schools in that discussion. And in the school budget, no one's talking about taking the money from the prisons. We have to have, do more of the economic analysis, and you need real data, accurate data, to do that well. In fact, more and more of that's happening. So you hear that, you know, for every, um, you know, 1% increase in the graduation rate, you save $2 billion. You know, those are the kinds of things that disinterested uh, folks, not the folks in this room, will still pay attention to. So you have to, you know, take your arguments and present them in a way that's going to be persuasive depending on the audience. So it's important to have a lot of, as advocates, to have lots of tools in the tool chest. And that begins with having accurate information, but it doesn't end there. So in addition, you have non-litigation strategy. I should mention that, you know, the last two conferences I was uh, presenting at were teams of lawyers. The AACLU has made, the, as part of their racial justice initiative, the school-to-prison pipeline is the core of that. So we have ACLU attorneys now around the country preparing to bring impact litigation lawsuits uh, on a number of different pieces of this pipeline. We have disability attorneys now who are getting the picture as well, who are, who are cons considering impact litigation. We have the Southern Poverty Law Center. We have the NAACP LDF. All of these folks are on board, and we're all working together to draft litigation guidance and also think about the relationship to legislation at the federal level. Because the other thing you can do do legislation is you give yourself a legal foothold. Right now, there's no private right of action under No Child Left Behind. So parents can't sue if the schools and the districts aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So thinking about when you – and you can get legislation passed at the state level that you might not get passed at the federal level. So thinking about these ways to provide – it really requires much more coordination and, 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 and more, more communication between all the different kinds of advocates that are out there. Another piece of the solution that, you know, it really shouldn't be left off the table is this concern about racial isolation. Talk about capacity issues in districts. As long as we have racially and socioeconomically isolated school districts, it's going to be hard to, to get the kinds of remedies we need. Um, and it's important to think in terms of strategy where you can think, you know, diversity. The Supreme Court has said diversity is a compelling interest. Now, it's very likely they're going to strike down voluntary desegregation. So it, it, we have a schizophrenic Supreme Court. But that doesn't stop us at the state level and the community level for thinking about the benefits of diversity and pushing for those as part of our litigation, part of our legislative, and part of our community advocacy strategies. No Child Left Behind, for example, there's this transfer provision. So if you're in a failing school, oh, I'm just about to, 
You can go to a, a, a highly performing school. There's no reason you couldn't build incentives in the law to go to a highly performing school in another district because a lot of the failing districts don't have enough highly performing schools to accommodate all the kids in the failing schools. So it's a, a, a remedy that's really, in, in practice, totally unworkable in places like Ohio. So thinking about these things together and coordinating uh, is really, I think, an important message. And the more folks can, you know, work together and uh, think about both legislative solutions, here are some of them. Uh, I've, I think I've touched on many of them. Uh, but, oh, here's the other issue in terms of the juvenile justice system, this will help with the segue, is that we have very little data on what happens to kids when they enter that system. We don't even know how many kids are entering, why they're arrested. All this information is very difficult to get in most states. And then tracking those kids and their outcomes. So it's hard to, to even address the problem if you don't have that kind of information. It's hard to get the funding, to, funding stream to be redirected if you can't show how much money is being wasted in, in programs that aren't working. Um, so I think that in the interest of time, I'll end there and just, you know, leave you with a thought that the, everything that folks in this room is doing is important. We all bring our own expertise, our own involvement, whether it's local or, or state or federal. But what we can all do differently, maybe, or in addition, is to think about the next level. You know, pick one level that you don't work on. Do you know anyone? Do you know your state legislator? Do you know, have you ever called your congressman? Do you know that right now, for example, I missed part of lunch because I was, call, I was speaking with a, uh, a federal legislator about the Gun-Free Schools Act. That's one of the sources of zero tolerance and trying to get some pressure to ha have accurate reporting of suspension and suspulsion, uh, expulsion data disaggregated by race and also trying to push back on this, you know, bad uh, new provision that might get added to make it easier to remove kids in certain situations. So, you know, think about one more thing you could do, one more area or someone you can connect with. And, you know, if everyone leaves today thinking there is someone I could call, there is something I can do, I think we will all be more effective. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that presentation. Um, he may have to leave pretty soon, so we're going to go ahead and open it up for maybe two to three minutes for questions. If you could keep, you know, keep your questions pretty concise, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Once again, my name is Leonard Moore. Um, I'm sure everyone is aware of the little girl in Texas who was incarcerated for shoving a hall monitor. And the same judge who sentenced her to seven years in prison gave a young lady, a white, a white girl, 13 years old, three months probation for setting her house on fire. Until that case came to light, no one was aware of the disparity which African-American kids was being sent to the juvenile system in that state, which they are looking at now that's proportionate in a lot of states. Do you think this is done on an unconscious but conscious level to, I would say, to boost the numbers of the education piece when it comes to blacks versus whites? Um, I'm not sure about the last part of your question, but I, I do think that it's both. So I, I, when I talk about structural racism and, and unconscious bias, that's not to say that there aren't people who are avid bigots who are teaching in our school, who are our school principals. Those people exist. I don't think, I think most of them don't use the language of bigotry on a daily basis. Uh, and so the, it's very difficult from a legal perspective to sort of 
catch them in a way the law has been watered down significantly in what you can pursue through a court system. And the federal courts, after you know many years of a very sort of conservative and <clears throat> you know politicians who don't want to recognize racial discrimination, basically those, many of those judges are, are who are judges who are replaced, new judges are ones that don't believe that there is racial discrimination or they won't, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll find a way around it any way they can. And in terms of fi- finding remedies for this issue, they're also very reluctant. So the federal bench is very much an obstacle right now as well as the whole legal structure. So litigation is, you know, when you, unless you have a real clear example of different treatment, you know, there's, there, you have to address these things in policy and in community advocacy. There are other ways to get at the same problems, but it's not always going to be uh, through court action. Yes, sir. Uh, Cornell Lewis from the Expanding Visions Foundation. Uh, we're mentoring young men, uh, and I've been getting a lot of questions from parents about charter schools, and I know that we're filtering kids out into a lot of different charter school systems. Do you think these that charter schools help or hurt the situation as far as education is concerned? In the I hate system? to be uh, <laughs> uh, sort of uh, give an ambiguous response, but uh, I'll try to frame it in a way that isn't. I think both. So they're tra- you know depending on how well they're monitored. If a charter company comes in, you know a for-profit company, they have no they're not proven effective, uh, and they're going to make some profit off of this uh, sort of opportunity. Um, you know, time and time again, some of those mo- may work, but some of them may not. And that, to me, is just adding insult to injury, um, especially in the context of Ohio, where you still have a, a system that's unconstitutional. So until you remedy that, I don't see charter schools, I don't see any, you know, clear answer. Now, that's not to say that some charter schools aren't better than some public schools, that the sort of can incentivize the system and get help the public schools get better. But part of the, especially the for-profit movement in charter schools, look, they're into branding. They're not into sharing their information. So if they find something that works, they want to sell it. They don't want to give it away. And that's a problem. Public education is for all of us. It's a public good. So I have a, a problem with any sort of for-profit or the, the, the privatization of our schools. Also, we have charter schools I've seen in Massachusetts, for example, the charter schools are some of the worst offenders when it comes to kicking kids out of school for disciplinary reasons and for having really high attrition rates. In other words, they're pushing kids out, and their their test scores may look good. You got to look behind the numbers. So, with a that's not to say there aren't some great charter schools there that should be there, um, but I think they need more cl- to be more closely monitored, both before they're introduced to the school system, before we subject any kids to them. We should really know what we're getting. And then we should be holding charter schools accountable just the way we do any other schools. I have a quick question. I'm wondering, for students who have left traditional schools and gone to alternative schools, do you look at data at all on what's happening to those students in terms of graduation rates and educational quality that they receive? Yes. And that's another. Alternative schools, you know, run the gamut again. So there are disciplinary, alternat- disciplinary alternative schools. And in Texas, uh, the gentleman earlier pointed out, there's a whole system where kids supposedly have a right to education. Most of the disciplinary alternative schools, those are prep schools for prison. Uh, they look like prisons. They act like prisons. Oftentimes, they're you know, ex-prison guards who are staffing them. There's no guarantees of quality. They're not reporting their data. Texas, the alternative system there is, is a travesty, and it is perpetuating this problem. That doesn't mean that there aren't great alternative schools in some places. There's another program that I've heard about and visited, ISIS, 
and I believe it's in Dayton, Ohio, where from all I, and I visit the school and I've met with the, the headmaster, Ann Hitchden, that looks like a fantastic program. She's reaching out to court-involved youth. There's a 60% graduation rate. The kids are rebuilding houses in the community and graduating with a real diploma as well as a trade certificate that makes puts them one rung above anyone else graduating high school in terms of future employment. And she's expanded that to the health care industry and the service industry, taking over a hotel and their kids are running it. I mean, this is, you know, John Dewey, if you're to pedagogy and theory, at its best. So there's some great things that can come out of alternative schools and there's some miserable things. And we really need to have the data to be able to tell one from the other. Thank you. Again, we want to thank Daniel Lawson for his presentation. Um, Our next panelist is Professor Christopher Robbins. He is an assistant professor of social foundations at Eastern Michigan University. His talk will explore significant aspects of the militarization of public schools while connecting this process to the evolution and intensification of zero tolerance. Um, please welcome Professor Robbins. Good afternoon. First, I want to say thank you. This is truly an honor uh, to be invited by the Kerwin Institute to present at uh, this conference today. Uh, and it's a privilege to, to be on such a, an immense panel here. The name of my talk is Assaulting Life Chances, the Criminalization of Youth and the Militarization of Schooling. This isn't an easy talk, uh, so bear with me, because I assure you I'm going to close on a hopeful note. Um, I'm going to refer back to democracy and, in particular, the relationship between schooling and democracy because it seems to me that one of the central issues here, when we talk about disproportionate exclusion, there are many factors involved in it, but one of the central factors is that, one, it's anti-democratic. And how do we raise questions about exclusion if we're not also talking about rights and opportunities? And it seems to me that democracy or an inclusive democracy provides the language by which we can begin to, to have even deeper conversations about it, and, and in particular the relationship of schools to an inclusive democracy. So I'm going to start with some context and enter into it by uh, expanding our understanding of violence. Former Secretary of Education William Bennett responded in an unsurprisingly dangerous way to the terrible tragedy of Virginia Tech. He said that universities, and one could assume public schools based on the other data, need more guns on their campuses to respond to violence as long as the firearms were in the hands of trained gun persons, like ROTCs, police officers, returning vets, etc. This comment was unsurprising because of Bennett's, and I might ruffle some feathers here, and more generally our society's long-standing and intensifying subservience to the military as a quintessential model on which to base responses to problems in schools and society that are endemically social, political, and economic. Bennett's statement was also unsurprising because it was no more than an echo of the proverbial battle cry among Democrats and Republicans since the early 1990s. Remember, the Gun-Free Schools Act was co-authored by two purported Democrats, Senator Feinstein and Senator Dorgan. Okay, and and when their recommendation was basically more violence or the increased potential for more violence, whether it is structural 
or symbolic is a solution for potentially tragic forms of individual acts of violence. This statement is clearly dangerous because it supports policies that promote and naturalize violence in schools by authorizing the means of violence as long as they are maintained and practiced by alleged official agents and their institutions. Moreover, this statement makes the egregious mistake of suggesting that the best that we and our school officials can do is react to perpetrators of violence. Consequently, attention is diverted from the social and economic roots of violence to individuals, socially and politically abdicating U.S. society for its role in not only producing, but if we judge by the spate of films like 187 uh, and, and similar films, celebrating school and social relationships that are at their base emotionally, psychologically, and pedagogically violent something that's only emboldened by the symbiosis between criminalization and militarization. If we're going to take violence serious as both a concept of and a practice, then we need to expand its meaning and our understanding of the practices it produces. For instance, violence is defined typically in terms of individual wrongdoing, harm or injury, uh, disruptive speech, bullying, to assault, or relatively infrequently, homicide, when violence is discussed in relation to schooling. But individual acts of violence always occur in a socio-cultural, political, and economic context, not a vacuum. Thus, violence should also be expanded most generally as a group's or institution's unintentional or strategic efforts at depriving another group or individuals within a group their basic human dignity, or as I will call it, their equality of being in the interest of domination or exclusion from struggles over scarcified social, political, and economic resources. This is called structural or systemic violence, depending on one's tastes, and it can be seen in things like immense poverty, as has been discussed earlier today. For instance, one in five children in the richest country in the world is in poverty, and that's according to an unforgiving definition of poverty. We also have the second highest rate of infant mortality in the world, tied with Poland, and we have 8.3 million children without health care. Many indicators are disproportionately stilted toward one racial group, as we all know here. One in eight white children lives in poverty, while four out of 40% of African-American youth live in poverty. The national average for infant mortality is 6.9 deaths per 1,000 live births, while for African-Americans, 14.1 per 1,000 live deaths. But the curious thing here is rarely is violence talked about in these ways in both popular discourse and policy circles. This is astonishing for education policy discourse, a discourse that clearly should be attentive to violence in any form, especially considering that primarily children and youth suffer the consequences of the ways we discuss violence and the policies that are created in response to those discussions. Structural or systemic violence in schools can be understood by way of the nested inequalities that are maintained in a racially segregated and class-stratified society. And then they can be witnessed in the practices, processes, and relationships that they structure at the local school level. For example, the nation as a whole in 2001 spent about $7,000 per student. However, New Jersey spent about $9,400, while Utah spent 4,600 per student. And there, these rates are accounted for regional cost differences. 
these gaps in allocations between states are also reflected but often magnified within states. For instance, my home area, per pupil allocations in Detroit in 2002 and 2003 were 95 to $9,600 per student. Go 20 miles away to Bloomfield Hills, 95% white, funding allocations were 13000 per student. Could get worse if you go to Chicago, Deerfield schools, 15 miles outside of downtown Chicago, they're getting 18,000 per student, while Chicago public school students are getting 8,000. Right. These allocation disparities bleed into the explicit and hidden curricula of schools. The so-called text of the school most closely associated with the racial disproportionality in discipline and exclusion. Underfunded urban, and I say parenthetically rural schools, generally have less qualified teachers than their well-funded suburban counterparts. Often, they have many uncertified teachers, teachers on emergency credentials. And they also have larger class sizes, higher student-teacher ratios, substandard or outdated explicit curriculum materials, faulty infrastructure, and overly regimented discipline philosophies and practices that border on authoritarianism. They also have more police, school security officers and surveillance equipment, and disproportionately higher rates of exclusion, as we all know here. These dynamics come with very real everyday consequences for youth. Consequences from increased police presence in schools include, but are not limited to, increased physical, sexual, and verbal harassment, the vanishing of already limited students' rights, and arrest for so-called disruptive behaviors or disorderly conduct. Things in the past that were handled by teachers, were handled by support staff in the school, handled by, in, in the worst cases, the administration. This is a severe crisis when we consider that disruptive or disorderly behaviors constitute, on a national level, 70% or more of the exclusions. So when disruptive behaviors tied increasingly to potential arrests and criminal records, trimmed life chances and civic incapacity become ghosts that haunt poor children and children of color for years to follow by throwing them into detention facilities, often without adequate educational provision, and a cycle of recidivism that eventually lands use in a criminal justice system for extended stays. Consider the, this is something I think we need to consider. Disruptive behavior is often predictable, and I refer to Dr. Rio's things earlier today, it might be an unproductive form of resistance, but it's a statement nonetheless that has to be understood and contextualized. So consider the following, which is detailed in a March 2000 report by the ACLU detailing criminalization in New York City public schools. Girls in New York City public schools are not only often frisked by male police officers, a violation of the education code, but they're also wanted by male police officers for unnecessary periods of time. Think of the sexual harassment and humiliation involved in that. 53% of the students have been verbally harassed or intimidated by police officers with names like Baby Rikers. For those of you who don't know, that's the penal colony off of New York. And in other cases, during security operations, girls have been told, hey, look, that girl has no ass. Nearly one-third of the students surveyed by the ACLU reported that they were touched inappropriately by these 
what we might call ultimately mercenaries. When students and even teachers contest these violations of student rights and human dignity, both are frequently met with an arrest for the student's disorderly conduct for the teachers now obstructing justice. All these interrelated processes and practices intensified in the 10 to 13 years since zero tolerance was legislated in the Gun Free Schools Act of 1994. So in addition to the related intrusion of the security industry into schools as part of the institutional shifts attendant to the GFSA, the process of militarization simultaneously bunkered into particular schools over the same time period. In this case, militarization should be understood as a wide social process that involves an intensification of the labor and resources in support of and in synchrony with military goals and objectives. One of the institutions crucial to militarization is that of educational generally and public schools specifically. In 1992, the junior ROTC received a new boost and was implemented extensively in public schools across the U.S. At a time when public sentiment for bloated military budgets was flagging with the advent of the end of the Cold War, the junior ROTC was, quote, meant to cultivate a public image for the military as efficacious, reliable, and concerned, end quote. That comes from Catherine Lutz. Colin Powell even said in 1992 that the junior ROTC would be a good gang for youth. So you go back to where violence then is okay if it's official, right? So the junior ROTC's objectives were also deeper and potentially more significant than this public relations function. It penetrated schools when the first wave of panics about school violence swept the nation. As a result, the junior ROTC was not only framed as a mechanism to launder the military's image, it was also a tool to be used purportedly in the service of enlisting, quote-unquote, troubled youth to receive extra and different discipline that was argued to be lacking in other areas of their lives. Proponents of the junior ROTC in the early 90s and now still proclaim that it helps minorities in the short term and the long term by straightening them out and enticing them to later join the military. I just received the latest needs assessment for the junior ROTC. Repeatedly, for each goal, not for each goal, but probably for 10 out of the 15 goals, one of the goals in each one was we need to have one in five economically and educationally distressed schools militarized by 2011 in three years, repeatedly. Nowhere in there did they say we need to have maybe even one in a hundred suburban schools militarized. It doesn't exist. So here, another corrosive racial subtext is operative with the junior Nazi and militarization. So not, not only were urban and poor schools targeted by the junior Nazi throughout the early 90s, they continue to be targeted as it's a strategic interest at the federal level right now. In 1992, two years before the Gun-Free Schools Act, 76 million was allocated to the junior Nazi by 2002, and more than tripled to 243 million. Programming increased from 1,500 in 1992, primarily located in the South, to 3,000 programs by 2002, most of which then being put into northern and western post-industrial cities. So here we can move a little further in, and, and it gets worse. Nationally, African Americans and Latinos constitute 50% of the 500,000 junior ROTC cadets. 
but approximately combined, they're only 27% of the school population. Cadets enlist in the services, or if they have the other financial means, the ROTC at the college level, at a rate of 50% upon high school graduation, if they make it to graduation. The rest of the student population enlists at a rate of like 9%. So to refer to another, another city mentioned earlier, Detroit Public Schools, 60% poor, 95% African-American and Hispanic, houses the junior ROTC in 22 of its 39 high schools. Chicago has it in 46 of its 92 high schools, in addition to 10 publicly run military charter academies. So here, what I think the overriding message with the high public visibility of military officials is that a potential emergency or crisis exists, thus reinforcing the belief that more discipline of this sort is not only required, but perhaps desirable. While clearly bringing disproportionate numbers of poor African Americans and Latinos into its field of battle. But the military spreads its tentacles into schools in yet another way, vis a vis the Leave Every Child Behind Act. One of the ways in which it comes through is through a plan called Troops to Teachers, and more recently, another one called Spouses to Teachers, which is for the, the husbands or wives of military vets. With President Bush's Education Act, NCLB school, No Child Left Behind, schools must now open student records to military recruiters. The well-funded school districts know and have information and packets of information to train their parents and students on how to opt out. This type of thing, because it's a resource issue, evades most poor schools. This is a complete break with precedent because in the past, before this, only universities or potential employers had access to student data. Nevertheless, No Child Left Behind promotes this militarization through another way. Tout is the program to, quote, recruit quality teachers for low-income families throughout America, end quote. The Troops to Teachers program was devised in 1994 and renewed in 2002 by No Child Left Behind. The interesting here is that the Department of Education funds this program, but gets who gets to run it? The Department of Defense. All right. So here we go. As of October 2006, 9,300 former troops had been employed as teachers in over 2,500 distressed districts part participating in the Troops to Teachers plan. So here's where I think this, this racial subtext the corrosive one, really becomes operative. In a democratic society, it's telling that we subsidize soldiers, 83% of whom are white males, to teach in poor urban and rural schools instead of investing in the citizens who already live in those communities, know the needs and values of those communities, and could thus more effectively reach and teach the students in those communities. My home state of Michigan, they invited Orwell to town this past November, and under the, the rubric of civil rights, erased affirmative action. It's, it's really questionable how students from Detroit are going to be able to go to college and return there to be teachers, but yet will divert, through the process of militarization, resources to whites, white males, to go in and teach urban youth. Here, I would like to say, just think of the Troops to Teachers motto. Proud to serve again. 
as if these former service people were entering urban schools to do battle and not deal and nurture impressionable and vulnerable youth. This is frightening, but fortunately, now here's where the hope can come in. People inevitably ask two questions in reference to this analysis. One is as follows, and it's irrelevant, I think. Aren't you being unpatriotic by asking these questions about the military? We say that for political science class. The other more germane question is as follows. So what if schools turn to the military for assistance? Isn't this the only option besides detention centers or jail for these kids? And this is the precise contradiction of this society, which prides itself on being the the shining city on the hill, the beacon of democracy. This is the contradiction that gets manifested. Under the myth of meritocracy, we'll send a minority students to prestigious public schools with all the inbuilt social capital for success, and we'll send others to schools that in their appearance and social effects closely resemble prison prep centers and garrison state outposts and proclaim that all of our students have equal access to the American dream. This sounds a little disingenuous at best, if not strategically wicked. This, in other words, is the glaring anomaly that Pedro Noguera, Henry Giroux, and many others argue convincingly we've made of the operation and mission of our public schools. Despite the inconsistent definition and interpretation of zero tolerance and other security measures, students of color and poor students, the most needy students, Uniformly, across the nation, are the students most likely to have their life chances carpet-bombed by the daisy-cutters of criminalization and militarization, all under the guise of being in their interests, keeping their schools safe, giving them a future. So defined as the opportunities one has to improve his or her life, or his or her group's quality of life, life chances are inextricably tied to equality of being, which in turn is tied directly to the health of democratic society. I'm going to have to skip ahead here in light of time constraints. The problems of zero tolerance and criminalization and militarization, for me, seem to be symptoms of a democracy deficit, a deficit that is produced in large measure by the increasing exclusion of youth of color from processes and practices and relationships in schools that produce equality of being and expand their life chances. If we think of democratization as a discursive practice that involves a shift in general societal beliefs and values in ways necessary to legitimate the use of dialogue, debate, contestation, and consensus, and a set of material process that involves the organization of the economic and cultural fields in ways that promote equitable access to both the symbolic and material resources of our society, then it is very clear that zero tolerance and militarization are processes of de-democratization. So for me, the clear alternative to zero tolerance militarization, but it's not a simple one, is renewed interest in connecting schooling to democratic public life and its struggles over the wider conditions that could make that process possible in the first place. I have three things that I'll enumerate. I do enumerate here, but for the sake of time, I'll close with this. Clearly, while reconstituting democratic public life is an immense order beset by any number of challenges, it's a pivotal part in the process of reclaiming the democratic legacy of public schooling, contesting criminalization and militarization, and producing equality of being. 
Equally as clearly, the dangers of not participating in such an undertaking are too despairing. Constant fear, paranoia, and ultimately cynicism, or paralysis, as Daniel suggested. The building of more prisons and less schools. The making of more criminals and less citizens, and then thus more grounds for more fear, more punishment, more exclusion. And then finally, the tacit support of wanton violence, while it's symbol- whether it's symbolic or physical, on local, national, and global scales. Without tolerance, there's no respect. Without respect, there's no equality of being. Without equality of being, there's no democracy. Without democracy, to close where I began, there seems to be little way or little language for raising questions about youth rights and opportunities and protecting our shared future. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that great presentation, Dr. Robbins. Our next presenter is Dr. Adolphus G. Belk, Jr. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and the African American Studies Program at Winthrop University. In his talk, Dr. Belk will discuss the United States' role as the undisputed global leader in incarceration and a disproportionate imprisonment of African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities. Please welcome Dr. Belk. To my colleagues in the academy, to my peers, to my elders, I'll say good afternoon. And to all the youngins, I'll say peace. And, you know, try to thank you all for sticking around so long. I I feel like I I should have like two minutes to kind of say my name, my institutional affiliation, and go sit down because we've been kind of running. But a couple of things. I think this kind of builds on, on the Lucent talk, on the Robbins talk, on some of the talks that we've had. This, this morning and this afternoon, if you can see the graphic, this is a graphic that I found on the Prison Activist uh, Research Center's website. And you look at the schools, closed, housing, boarded up, health, closed, youth center, closed, on and on and on. But the prison door is wide open. And the prison door is wide open. And so if anything, mine is a call for balance because on one hand, and um, uh, Dr. Rios referred to this earlier, all of these young men and young women are not super predators as articulated by John DeUlio in 1995 in an article titled The Rise of the Super Predators. Yet at the same time, to paraphrase Aaron Magruder, every brother that gets arrested is not Nelson Mandela or Geronimo Pratt. Every sister that gets arrested is not Angela Davis or Asada Shakur. So we have to have some balance in this discussion. But in terms of what I want to do, a little bit of background in terms of how we got there from here, talk about the prison industrial complex. I've spent the last several years working in this area. It was my doctoral thesis, now manuscript being revised for publication somewhere at some point. I'll let you know. And look a little bit inside the numbers, then assess the costs, because the costs are economic, political, and social. And so there are considerable costs when we look at 
incarceration in America, and those costs are borne by families, they're borne by the individuals themselves, they're borne by taxpayers and a host of other Americans. And then lastly, where do we go from here? Because uh, Dr. Powell was suggesting, you know, we need to think about some of the ways that we can kind of turn some of these things around. So where do we go from here? The rise of law and order. Anyone who studies crime will tell you that crime is ostensibly an issue for local and state governments. You're apprehended by local law enforcement officials. You're going to be processed in local courts. You're going to be sentenced to a state prison if you committed a felony or to a county jail if you committed a misdemeanor or something therein. But during the 1960s, a new discourse on crime emerged, which articulated a greater role for the federal government in crime fighting and drug control and in law enforcement. What's interesting is that this was coming from the party that had often championed devolution and giving up federal control over certain areas to state and local governments. So it's a really interesting development. That discussion starts with Republican Senator Barry Goldwater in 1964, suggesting that he represented those who were the silent majority, who were the non-demonstrators, the non-protesters, and who wanted law and order. And others would pick up on this. So Dan Carter, writing about George Wallace and Richard Nixon in The Politics of Rage, suggested that Wallace said, you know, it's really about law and order. And little boys don't commit, you know, men don't commit crime because they didn't get enough broccoli when they were little boys. So that was a part of his language. And his was a racially coded language such that there were people who actually believed that if Wallace was elected president, they would get to go into black communities and bust heads. They thought that was a part of the program. So he articulated a particularly virulent strain of law and order that would be modified a bit by Richard Nixon. You know, tricky dick, I'm not a crook. And he took this to the White House. And there were major legislative initiatives that came about in the 1960s, 1970s, during the Nixon administration that offered more funding, more federal funding for state and local law enforcement, more funding for prison construction, greater role for the federal government in law enforcement, all of this coming in the context of protest politics, a civil rights movement, a women's rights movement, an anti-war movement, and by 1966, 1967, cries for black power and bringing political control and control over the economics of black communities to the people who lived in those communities. We go to the 1980s and we get the war on drugs. About 1984, someone somewhere is supposed to have made crack cocaine. By 1986, you get a basketball player at the University of Maryland named Lynn Bias dying from cocaine ingestion. He died from ingesting powder cocaine, but a lot of the stories insinuated that he had ingested crack cocaine. And there came this rallying cry, we have to do something. Will someone think of the children? Will someone think of the children? And so as a result of these activities, we get the... Anti-drug abuse acts of 1986 and 1988 during the Reagan administration, creating a 100 to 1 ratio when we talk about drug sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. A number of states would follow the federal government, but some states were ahead of the federal government on this one, particularly when I think about my home state, New York, where the Rockefeller drug laws were adopted during the early 1970s, imposing 15-year-to-life sentences for even simple possession, the idea being that we would net the drug kingpins. Didn't quite happen. Then you get this man who in 1988 was trailing Michael Dukakis in the polls and had an image problem. People thought he was wimpy. 
you know, Lee Atwater saw him take off his suit jacket and he was wearing a short sleeve dress shirt and Atwater said, you know, I never want to see you in short sleeves again. You look like an accountant. No offense to any accountants or any accountants you may know. So you had an image problem. So how do you toughen yourself up? Well, you get tough on crime. The gentleman in the insert is Willie Horton. Willie Horton was released on nine furloughs successfully, a weekend pass from prison. On the 10th furlough, he escaped from the state of Massachusetts where he was incarcerated, went down to Prince George's County, Maryland, where he beat a man and raped the man's companion. And Dukakis caught heat for this, and they had the ads, they had the commercials. And some of you are old enough to have seen the commercials. And they had, like, you know, people kind of going in the prison gate and coming right out like a turnstile. Like, you go in and then you come right back out. And then they had the images going back and forth between, between Willie Horton and between George, I mean, between Dukakis almost suggesting that just Horton with Dukakis' running mate. And those commercials were effective because he became the next president of the United States. Articulating this, let's get tough on crime. And that was the idea, be tougher, be sterner. Then we all know this man, because he felt our pain. (laughs) It's amazing to me that sometimes we don't display an ability to think critically. This man gets into some problems with some marijuana, plays a saxophone, cheats on his wife, hangs out with Vernon Jordan, and everyone says, this is our first black president. You know, talking about these socially constructed negative images. Well, Clinton didn't want to get decaucused. And so in 1992, I got a picture of a gas chamber, I mean of an execution chamber. He oversaw the execution of a mentally impaired black man by the name of Ricky Ray Rector in 1992. Ricky Ray Rector had the IQ of a third grader or a eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. He saved some of his last meal for later and said that he would vote for Clinton if he, if he could. Now, as our, our legal friends will tell you, because of Roper versus Simmons, such executions are unconstitutional as a violation of the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution. That then, it was constitutional. And Clinton said very clearly, you might be able to accuse me of a lot of things, but you will not be able to accuse me of being weak on crime. So under his watch in 1994, the nation adopts a $30 billion crime, legis- a crime initiative that offered more money for prison construction, provided the states adopt truth in sentencing, and to be compliant with the federal initiative, they would have to require inmates to serve 85% of their time in prison. It federalized three strikes and you're out. And in addition to that, it put what, about 100,000 cops on the street, so there was money for that. And it was interesting because some critics of this act, like Bob Dole, Republican, of, um, Republican from Kansas, said that it looked as if it were concocted by a university sociology department. <laughs> so for some people, it wasn't tough enough, but in actuality, it was quite tough. So I don't have to speak much on this because my colleagues from the Democracy Collaborative and from Indiana University kind of drove home the point about deindustrialization and its impact in the American economy. But to kind of put it simply, you know, American economy kind of went from this to this. (laughs) And this would help to make it possible for there to be an environment where prisons could be seen as an economic development area offered an environmentally clean industry that did not pollute, offered, offered an opportunity to develop infrastructure in underdeveloped parts of a county or town or community, and you see the emergence of almost the type of penal Keynesianism. So for the political economy folks, you look at Keynesianism, you had this notion that government spending could help pull the economy through a downturn. 
Well, many of the communities that were rocked by deindustrialization were communities that depended on industry or government. I think about one community I studied in New York. They had a mental health hospital that had been run by the state for over 100 years, and they also had an army depot, or as they say, depot, you know, their upstate New York accent. And they again turned to the state for help. And so it would be in this context that you would get a prison industrial complex. You look at the numbers on crime, the blue line indicates property crime. And property crimes are actually the most numerous. And it's scaled over here. And so if you look at the scale over here for property crime, and then you look at the scale over here for violent crime, you see the property crimes are much more likely to occur. Someone steals your iPod out of your car. Someone steals your car. You know, those things are more likely than murder, rape, um, aggravated assault, things of that sort. And you can see that we can interpret this in different ways. If Pivot and Clavard were reading this during the 1960s, they would say it was evidence of protest politics on the way. Other people might say those people were acting a fool and running them up. And folks like DeLulio predicted that right around here in 1995, these numbers would keep going up. He was wrong. And the young people he criminalized actually contributed to the decrease in crime rates. We look at what happened with drug arrests. Notice what happens after 1986 and 1988, after those measures went into effect. The numbers go up and they stay up. So what is the prison industrial complex? This is a, a you know, people like, like a Truman and others have written about iron triangles and you have the different points in the iron triangle stability over time. Other people like Heckloh have talked about issue networks. I look at the prison industrial complex as kind of being a hybrid because it has some features of an issue network and some features of an iron triangle. We look at an iron triangle, we do see that stability over time. We see bureaucratic agencies and legislative committees and subcommittees and interest groups, but we also see it operating at the state level. And the insight from the issue network's literature comes in in the following way. If you notice, that center part is perforated because there are some groups that move in and out. Other groups, the law enforcement associations, the correctional officer associations, they're in this and they're in it for, a long, for the long haul. But then there are groups like the NRA. They jump in when it's something that might threaten their concerns and then they jump out. And so, you know, they say, well, you know, guns aren't the problem, people are the problem. Well, the guns probably help. <laughs> and so, how is this played out? Well, Here's what's happened with incarceration in America. Bloomstein and others have noted that for the better part of a century, incarceration rates were fairly stable until we get to the late 1970s. And then they go up to unprecedented heights. And only since about 2000 that they can hand them level off of it. Where does this place us in terms of race and ethnicity? Blacks and Latinos make up about 26% of the American population, but account for 63% of those persons who are in state or federal prison. Extended inmates, meaning people who get one year or longer. Black males alone accounted for 45% of male inmates, and 9% of black males between 25 and 29 were in prison as of year end 2003. So the numbers are pretty daunting. We look at the incarceration rates by race. Some of it fell off with Latinos. Someone else pointed this earlier, so I can leave that alone and go on. Where do we stand in reference to the rest of the world? We're number one. We're number one. Topping countries like Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan. 
China, Russia, European Union nations in blue, we're way ahead. Access of evil, Iraq, no data. Afghanistan, no data. Iran, data, way out front. So by far, the worldwide incarceration leader. Why so many folks? Policy. Policy, and again, it's a strange thing with this thing called federalism. In some instances, the state governments were following the lead of the federal government. In other instances, however, the states were way out ahead of the federal government when I think about New York with something like the Rockefeller drug laws. Truth in sentencing is a, a big one because in most states, it would require inmates to serve at least 50, but as much as 85% of their time in prison. And then with three strikes, three strikes is mostly symbolic because most states already had sentencing enhancements for multiple offenders. But in places like California and Georgia, its impact was significant. So Mark Maurer raises a point that's pretty interesting. And he says, you know, if we were talking about more than a million and a half sons and daughters of the white middle class, we'd be having a different conversation. So what are the costs? Basically, to summarize this really quickly, if you're spending so much on incarceration, and if spending on corrections has increased by 1,173% since 
they experience these other pressures. So poverty in combination with joblessness, in combination with poor schooling, in combination with some of these other things, leads to that wide open prison door. So if prisons were the answer, we'd be crime free. So prisons clearly are not the answer. And policymakers have a choice. Because again, since this is state driven, they can't continue to pay for this in an environment where the coffers are drying up and the tobacco money is spent. So the public says, do better. The public is tired of the overblown rhetoric. The public is asking that we be smart on crime. And the public is saying in a very clear way over time that people need to deal with some of these other problems rather than spending more money on corrections. We have to be careful how we talk about it because then it becomes, you know, Robin's belt, why can't you liberals say that you love America? You're trying these great society programs that have failed, so you have to be careful about how you articulate your interests and your policy initiatives in this environment. What works, and this is where I'll close and I'll try to make uh, Brother Powell happy, and I'll make this brother happy too, my time is passed. Um, there's a program in Cook County, Illinois that's being funded by the and that program is designed to divert juvenile offenders from detention facilities into community-based treatment programs. These programs do not disrupt the rhythm of their lives. They're able to continue to be around their family, to go to school, and they end up producing some good results at a fraction of the cost of detention. And so that's an example of the type of things that's being done in a creative way to break this school to prison pipeline. Thank you. Thanks again, Dr. Belk, for a great presentation. Um, at this time, we, we are running behind on, on schedule, but we will, out of fairness, give a few minutes to questions. Please make them concise. Um, please have them written down if you have a pen, a pen and some paper. Are there any questions? If not, we're going to move on. Oh, great. So thanks again to the, present, to, the, to the panelists, Dr. Belk and Dr. Robbins. I think the next panel will be here soon. You know, as just a moderator, I'm going to have to ask someone else that, that I don't know if. I can make it available. Daniel, the folk here have it, so I can make it available. I'm cool with that. Just spell my name right. <laughs> I think we're going to take a short, a short break until the next panel, which is the dynamics of African-American male opportunity. Um, I encourage you to stay around because it starts next five minutes. In five minutes, it'll start in five minutes um, promptly. So thanks again.
I have a copy over here if you want it, the article. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's fantastic. What's up, bro? What's up, man? Mike, Mike Spencer. Man. You know, uh, E. White? I do. Okay. I do. Yeah, that's my homeboy. Okay, cool. You yeah. go to Morehouse? Yeah, well, yeah. Are you going out tonight? I, I go here. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, you want out? Yeah, I will be out. You go? Alright, you click now. Okay, alright. Cool. Likewise. Thank you, man. I'm out of here. All right, take it easy, man. Six hours. Thank you. Contact me directly if you have right. some trouble. All right, great. Thank you. Appreciate you. You want name tag, Dr. Bell? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, my mama will like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get my baby. So, uh, do we got... Do we got five? Thanks, man. Oh, yeah, no problem. See you later. Yeah, I need to go to work. I've been in the office all day. Did you do that during somebody's uh, no, presentation? No, I, I didn't take a nap, but I took a hit during the night. It really kind of helped us. 
to you from Sean Harper. Nice to meet you. Keith Harmon. Another Keith. Slipping, slipping us a note. <laughs> uh, We would like to begin again, so if you could find your way back to your seat, we'd be appreciative. If you could begin to find your way back to your seat, we'd be appreciative. Thank you very much. We're going to begin. My name is Hassan Kwame Jeffries. I'm an assistant professor in the history department, uh, and I have a faculty appointment with the Kerwin Institute uh, for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. This is our fourth and final panel this afternoon, and the title for this panel uh, is The Dynamics, uh, or examining, or we'll be examining the dynamics of African American male opportunity. We want to end uh, on a high note. We've heard uh, about the disparities. We've heard about the problems. We've heard about the conditions. But we want to end on a high note uh, of ways to move forward um, so that we can create uh, dynamic change. You have, in the interest of time, I would like to just briefly introduce our panelists. Uh, fuller bios are located in the uh, programs that are provided in the front that many of you have. One second. Could you, Ming, could you tell them? Thank you. Our first panelist is uh, Principal Keith Bell. Uh, principal Bell is the, um, is the principal of Westerville South High School, and he has been the top administrator at Westerville South uh, for three years. He will talk about ways that school administrators and teachers can promote the successful education 
of African-American males. Uh, Dr. Sean Harper uh, will be our second presenter. Uh, Dr. Harper is an assistant, uh, is an assistant professor uh, and research associate in the Center uh, for the Study of Higher Education at the Pennsylvania State University. His research focuses on, among other things, race and gender in higher education, the effects of college environments on student behaviors and outcomes in student affairs at historically black colleges and universities. He will share some insights into what works, the programs, people, uh, and enriching educational uh, experiences that help prepare African-American -Amer males for admission to and success at various types of post-secondary educational uh, institutions. Our third uh, presenter is Keith Harmon. Uh, Mr. Harmon is the assistant director of the Meyerhoff uh, Scholars Program at the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, and he will discuss uh, some of the details of this program, offer a critique or evaluation of the program, and talk about the factors that impact the success of black males uh, in the STEM fields. And finally, uh, we will conclude with a dual presentation uh, made by uh, Mr. Jason, Mr. Jason Reese and Dennis Roden. Uh, Jason Reese is a senior researcher at the Kerwin Institute uh, who manages uh, uh, the regionalism, housing, and mapping demographic ac activities at the Institute. Uh, and Mr. Roden is associate uh, at the Kerwin Institute uh, and a GIS uh, demographic specialist. Uh, in their talk, they will summarize their research on connections between neighborhoods and the regional opportunity structure. So we will end on a high note. Uh, briefly, uh, each uh, of the first three panelists will have roughly 12 to 15 minutes each to share with us their thoughts. Uh, then Mr. Reese and Mr. Roden will have a combined 18 to 20 minutes uh, to do uh, their joint presentation. And that will leave us with a few minutes for question and answers. Uh, and then you will uh, see me uh, again at that point. I ask each panelist just to briefly reintroduce themselves, identify themselves rather, for those who will be coming in. We will begin with Mr. Keith Bell. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, if you know anything about uh, Westerville South, I was a little busy on Wednesday. Um, for those of you who don't know, we had lockdown in our school. We had a student that uh, brought a weapon to school, and we had to deal with that, and, and uh, it was a, uh, a, a long day. But uh, I want to tell you that uh, we, we, hand, we were able to handle that and do what we needed to do. Uh, and sometimes Lord presents uh, opportunities through obstacles. And uh, so we were able to, to get through that, but it was kind of a hairy situation. So we had a long, long day on Wednesday. And so it just kind of, I, I lead with that because uh, although I'm going to talk to you a, a little bit about what we can do as a high school administrator, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And there are days that uh, I tell people I play mental basketball. I'm a former basketball coach. There are days that I come in, I get full court pressed. Uh, there are days that I get zoned. There are days I get trapped. There are days that I want to take a time out and I don't have any time to do it. Uh, the decision to go to lockdown the other day was about 30 seconds before lunchtime. And uh, so had we gone to lunchtime, as you know, we would not have been able to, to get everybody back. So um, we were able to deal with that and, and move on. So it's a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, I, I just want to briefly share some, some things with you. Let me just give you a little background. Uh, about uh, six years ago, I became the first uh, African-American 
high school principal in central Ohio. Now, think about the time period. Uh, that was in year 2000, and I was principal of Groveport Madison High School. My first um, staff meeting, there was no one that looked like me in the audience. And so as I go in, as you know, the perceptions are uh, he's been an assistant principal. He's a, he's a uh, person that doesn't look like us getting ready to lead, so you know you have those challenges. And so what happened for me is that uh, uh, was an opportunity for me to show uh, other young brothers and people who aspire to, to get into education that it doesn't really make any difference what your color is if you're about the right things. Um, some of you may, may know my brother a week ago was uh, appointed state fire marshal. He was the uh, chief in uh, Toledo, and now he is the state fire marshal. And our parents taught us a long time ago that uh, none of those things are obstacles, that you, you can aspire to do whatever you need to do. But that first day uh, at Groveport, I won't forget, because I know as I was speaking to people and I was trying to get them to understand what, what the platform would be, they're looking at me like, I wonder if he can get this done. And uh, so uh, with uh, um, a lot of uh, hard work and uh, grace through our, our Lord and Savior, we were able, able to turn Groveport Madison around and at Westerville South High School tr trying to do this, this, some similar things. I, I just want to point out a few things that high school administrators, uh, anybody that's in charge of um, the number of uh, students that I'm in charge of, 1,500 at my high school, some things that, that we try to do or that I try to do to make sure that our students uh, have the opportunity. And the first thing I want to talk about is what, what I call access and opportunity. One of the things that I've tried to do at Westerville South um, this year and, and uh, especially this year and started two years ago uh, was to define the difference between access and opportunity. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the, there was an understanding that because you offer a course to people that you've granted them access. And as we know with minority children, that's not the case. Just because you offer it doesn't mean that all kids have access. And so one of the things that we've tried to do is to make sure that uh, individuals understand that access means that you might have to do a little bit more to get those individuals involved in what's going on. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of what I'm talking about. One is the fact that when I did a little research and found out that in our upper-level courses that we had in our district, that only 3% of them were represented by minorities. We have 30% minority in our district. So I wanted to find out what, what, was, the, what was the problem. What was, why were we only having 3% representation in our upper-level courses when we had 30% representation in our school? And I'm just looking at all, all of our uh, subpopulations. Well, what I found out is that our guidance counselors and the people who have access, gatekeepers, what they do is they offer the courses to our children, but they don't explain to them, and they don't go out to the parents to make sure the parents understand what these courses are, that they have opportunities to do them. And what happens is um, our students then settle for mediocrity. They'll take the easy courses because they can get an A as opposed to having access to the upper-level courses. So what we're doing now is we are making a, con a concerted effort to make sure all students uh, have an opportunity to, to um, uh, take some of those uh, upper-level uh, courses and have an opportunity to be able to um, uh, have access just like uh, everyone else, but also uh, we may have to do some things a little bit different. The other thing that I found out is that I, I did a little research regarding our uh, ACT and SAT scores, and I found out that uh, our scores, uh, although they were pretty, pretty good, that in our minority population our scores were a little bit lower, and I wanted to find out why because I knew our students performed at the same level. Well, what happens on the ACT is that students that uh, have a means to take the ACT more than once will get a higher score. And all research will show you that the more, often, the more times you take the test, 
obviously, the better off you're going to do from the first time to maybe the third time. Well, what I found out is that our minority students, on average, um, very few of them took the test more than once. And so as a result of that, their scores would be lower. As a result of that, their access to some of the uh, uh, colleges and opportunities that some of the other students were getting wasn't the same. So little things like that. So what we've been able to do this next school year is I've gotten our district to be able to uh, support having all students get the uh, ACT and have the district pay for it, and then also all students being able to get the PSAT and have them pay, for, pay for it, and then also the plan. Because what's going to happen in two or three years when the Ohio Corps goes into effect, all students are going to have to be able to meet higher standards. And here's where the problem lies. Um, if we, uh, me as a, as a building administrator, and we all understand about Ohio graduation tests, and that's what uh, everybody sees and hears, if that's the only measure of how our students are being successful, then when they become juniors and seniors and they can't meet the Ohio Corps, then what I'm doing is preparing them for less than what they're going to have to deal with when they go out. And so it's important for me to be able to understand that. It's important for me to be able to have them to understand that. And it's also important for me to make sure that they understand that um, they have to have, um, they have to be ready when they leave high school because high school is not enough for them to be able to achieve. Um, uh, I, I looked at the number of students that were turned down for Ohio State. Uh, currently, I'm working on my uh, Ph.D. in superintendent certification right here and did a little research to find out how many students uh, of our students were turned down at Ohio State. And roughly 20% uh, of our students, and these are, are pretty good students, turned down at Ohio State. And I keep trying to tell our students that in order for you to be able to be successful uh, in, the, in our economy, in a flat economy, the way things are, a flat world, the way things are now, you're going to have to be able to... Um, uh, be ready. And so it's up to us to be able to do that. So for me specifically, uh, our, our minority students uh, sometimes don't get that. What they get is they get all of the, the media stuff. They get all these other things. And so for, for me as an administrator, it's important for me to make sure that they understand that they have uh, opportunity, but they have opportunity through access. So I think that that's uh, very important. The second thing that I think uh, is key for me as an administrator to uh, make sure our students uh, understand is that um, uh, I have to be able to be a role model for them to, so that they can aspire to do some of the same kinds of things. And I think what happens a lot of times is that they don't see people in our position, my position, uh, and then they say, we say, you can aspire to do whatever you want to do, yet they don't see anybody like them in the same positions. And so I think it's important that they, you know, we, that I do it right but that they also know that they can do it right also and that they have an opportunity to be able to do that. So we've done that through a lot of our career uh, opportunities that we've done. We've brought people in to uh, share with them uh, the uh, career opportunities that they have, also for them to understand what the preparation is to be able to do that. And so I think as a, as a high school administrator, um, my job is to get them ready for when they leave high school, depend, whatever they decide to do, whether that be workforce or whether that be uh, going into uh, um, uh, post-secondary education, whether it be right after high school or down the road. And so I think that they, they need to understand um, how important that is, but they also need to understand that they can aspire to do um, the same kinds of things that, that I do. Uh, the third thing that I think is very important is that our students uh, sometimes get the impression that the degree is all it's, that's, it's all about. Uh, I'll give you an example. A year ago, I had... Uh, uh, social studies position opening in our building, and I had 253 applications for one position. I had applications from India. I had applications from all over the place. And I, I'd speak to our students on a quarterly basis about my expectations and all that kind of thing. 
And when I share, I shared this with our seniors, I said, uh, do you understand that you don't necessarily compete with the people that you see in this room and you don't compete with the people that you may see in Ohio and you may not compete with the people that you see in America that you're competing against the world now? Their, their playing field is completely different than, than mine was. And so in order for them to be able to compete, they need to understand that their competition isn't necessarily about a degree. It's about how they're going to be able to deal with people. And if they can't deal with people, then um, chances of them being successful are very slim. And so what I've tried to do with uh, all of our students, minority, all of our students, is to get them to understand the importance of uh, networking and the importance of not only having a degree, but also being able to understand and how to deal with people. Um, most businesses, most Companies, most uh, organizations can teach you to do anything. You know, when I got into being, when I when I first became a, a, an administrator, I told people I was responsible for things that I didn't know how to do yet. But the one thing I did know how to do was to deal with people, so I can learn. And what they want to do is to be able to get people who, who can learn. So I think that as a high school administrator, it's real important um, that that message gets out, and especially for our, our minority children, because the opportunities for them. Uh, and the presentation that they make is key for them to be able to have some success. And so I try to make sure that uh, they understand that and that they um, understand that uh, there is support uh, and that there are no excuses, that you uh, have to go out and get things done uh, and that if you don't get them done, that you have to look at yourself and be able to do that. It is a, um, uh, a really undaunting job to try to get kids who come in sometimes with this iPod mentality and uh, all the things that, that distract them and try to get them focused. But that's what our job is. And so um, I try to uh, make sure that through my the people that I'm around and through our district uh, that they recognize that we may not necessarily be doing things the same way that we've done them before, that there may be some things that we have to do a little bit different in order to reach our different groups of kids. Um, I'll leave you with this. In our district, there are 72 different languages that are spoken. 72 different languages. And so if we teach things the way we taught them before, we're not going to get through to 71 of the people. And so it's important for us to understand that we have to change what we do and how we do it uh, and that we have to be willing uh, to change and that we have to understand that all our kids don't learn the same way. Um, that's been an education in itself to a lot of our old, old school uh, people who have done things the same way forever. And uh, so it's important that they have someone that, um, whether it be me or someone else, that can recognize that, get them to understand what they need to do, how to make those changes, and to, uh, to keep our students uh, focused. So um, those are just, you know, I could go on and on, but I want to be respectful of time. I just want to make sure you understand that uh, uh, all high, schools, high school administrators um, share in, in trying to, to do some of those things. I think the ones that, that separate themselves are the ones that go in and try to, to get some answers and, and know uh, somebody told me a long time ago, it's not necessarily having the answers, but it's knowing what questions to ask. And what I've done is try to go into our district and ask some questions that uh, if I don't get the right answer, then we try to, to find out why and so that we can uh, help students to, to be able to be successful. So uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, and uh, um, I think this is a, a great uh, opportunity for us to be able to learn from one another. And so thank you very much for your attention.